0: Hi everybody, welcome to um, this week's podcast, which is episode 23, I think. I hope you're doing well. It's been a uh, funny old week, really. A week of... um, There seems to be lots of comedy around this week, actually. It seems to have been a week where people have been sharing a lot of comedy, particularly with me. Um and just kind of, i think in light of what happened last sunday in the uk with this kind of announcement that was very vague and quite confusing about what we could do um i actually found it pretty clear to be honest with you because i just i just think it's like common sense isn't it so but i found some of the yeah there's some funny funny stuff around um and it's been yeah a week of a very very similar week to the weeks before really just keeping practicing and trying to do some writing. Um I've been doing this writing this funny piece of music, which a friend of mine, Pete Turner, has been helping me with and he's um recorded some bass for it today. It's basically we both it's like this weird thing. It's like funny how people remember things. Um they stick in the mind. In 2014, me uh my good friend Jamie Sharif, um, who's actually my boss at college, but we also we played together for a long, long time, and Pete Turner. And we actually all met for the first time um, when we met each other f- for the first time. Like, the first time I met Pete was the first time I met Jamie. It was the first time he'd met Jamie and, and vice versa. Um, and we played together since, like, the late 90s a lot and lots and lots of different projects and, uh, and good friends and stuff and uh, done lots of things together. A very similar senses of humour, you know, and uh, um, both from the sort of Manchester area. Pete's from Wigan, and Jamie's from here in Bolton. I'm from originally Salford, but grew up in Glossop. As you kind of if you'd listened to last week, you've had all that long drizzly story, boring story. Anyway, we went to China in 2014. Um, Jamie's got a trio that we play in, and uh, writes some pretty. Uh, contemporary crazy music actually it's quite interesting music it's a great gig for a drummer it's a great gig for all of us I think it's quite hard for Pete because it's like quite challenging on the double bass all that music but it's you know he's up for, always up for a challenge Pete it's a bit crazy and um, if anyone knows the band Henge for instance they've got quite a big following as Pete plays in that band so you kind of you know you get, you get the measure of Pete
1: knowing
0: a bit about that as well uh great jazz bass player great electric bass player as well as one of those and plays synth bass and stuff and you know just uh, just a great musician really and a uh, very funny guy and we were we went to three cities we went to shanghai a place called hangzhou which i think i'm pronouncing correctly hangzhou which is about an hour southwest of shanghai uh, very nice city actually really liked it there um quite a european city and the food was amazing really recommend it um it was nice we played in a nice uh, jazz club on the jay-z they got the jay-z brand brand in shanghai but they've also got a club in hangzhou which is like it's like a brand they got a record label and a music school and stuff and we did quite a lot of stuff for them when we were there did some gigs at their club and some workshops and stuff and then we went up to beijing uh on the train which was an amazing journey um it was a mind-blowing journey actually the the, the 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 one thing about that journey which we all remember was um it was on one of these amazing trains it went at 302 kilometers an hour and it was like basically arrow straight track you know hangzhou and, you, and you, when you get to beijing and when you got on the The train, it was like going through airport passport control. You know, you had to have your passports and went through security machines and all that stuff, you know, and um, really nice seats and stuff. Amazing, amazing uh, infrastructure. Like, makes makes sort of, you know, especially the UK kind of travel, sort of, um, uh, you know, the public um, uh, rail systems and all that just puts us to shame, really. Uh, Not in Europe. I think Europe's got great. you know, rail system and stuff, particularly France and Belgium and Holland and and Scandinavia and places and Germany, obviously. Um, but anyway, we travelled up to Beijing and on this train it was like arrow straight, two hundred mile an hour train. Um, it was funny actually. There was a there was a there was a little boy on there with his mother and, uh, I think. He thought I was, a f- like, some kind of giant or a bit of a freak. I mean, people don't know me in real life. I'm I'm not particularly tall, but I'm four, I'm one 6'4", I'm 194 centimetres, so I'm quite tall. And in China, I'm pretty tall. Um, and this little boy on this train was... Basically, he'd kind of clocked me and he was coming down the carriage and trying to hide and trying to shoot me and things, and I think he... He thought I was something out of like some kind of weird movie, you know, like a big giant. And the uh, and the Chinese um, Rachel, who was Chinese, who was looking after us, uh, was basically saying that yes, he hasn't seen anybody like you before. Because uh, Pete and Jamie are a bit, you know, they're not they're not as tall as me. They're kind of more probably more akin to the height of people in China. Actually, you know, more sort of just average height, you know. Um, but she was basically saying, "Yeah," and the mother was very was really apologetic. But anyway, that's another story. On the train, we were, we were going north on this train, and uh, it was five hours, a thousand miles, amazingly quick. Um, we had we had two truck. We could have flown, and we didn't want to fly at the time. there had been some been quite a few sort of terrorist things that happened with flying at the time, and I think. Um, one of them had involved a Chinese airline or something, and uh, Rachel's parents didn't want her to fly, so we went took this train, and I'm really glad we did because it's never get a chance to go on a train like that. Normally, you have to go, uh, you know, Japan do the bullet train or something. So, um, yeah, we got on this train. Uh, we had this kid running around pretending he was trying to kill me and stuff. Uh, I like got some sort of weird um, vibe, and. The thing that we clocked as we were going on and on after an hour, two, three, four hours, was that outside there was this fog. You know, and it was just it was just a continual fog. You couldn't see more than I don't know, a hundred and fifty yards outside the train window. You couldn't you there was no view to really look at. You could sort of see out, but um you know, fifty, forty, fifty 40, 50 meters or something, whatever. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't a huge, you, you couldn't look out, and look at the countryside or something. There just wasn't any view, you know. And uh, I said to Rachel, I said, oh, it's funny, isn't it? We've had this weather, you know, all the way, all the way, th- you know, a thousand miles of, of weather. And she was like, no, no, this isn't weather. This is pollution. Um, and it was a smog you know, because of the coal, because they burn so much coal. And I was, I just couldn't get my head around it. It's just everything over there is... I mean, it's so big, you know. The cities are enormous, Shanghai and Beijing. I couldn't get my head around uh, the size of the place, you know. Shanghai was... Because, you know, you arrive, don't you? You do a... We did a a long haul from Frankfurt. So we went from Manchester to Frankfurt and then we got on the the long haul and it was 12, about 12 and a half hours in one go from Frankfurt. A bit quicker on the way back from Beijing because it's a bit nearer. It's only like nine and a half hours, ten hours or something. But it was just over 12 hours out there. And then you arrive, you know, and I I don't sleep at all when I travel. I never sleep. Uh, It's just... I just can't sleep. I'm not a brilliant sleeper anyway. Um... And so, you know, we arrived at 7.30 in the morning and it's just, like, so you you know, obviously bit jet-lagged and bewildered and I was terribly jet-lagged. I, I really suffer quite badly with the jet-lag. I don't do well going that direction. I don't do bad doing the other way. Going backwards in time is fine because, you, you know, you you can just stay up a bit longer, can't you, and go to sleep, but when you're going forward in time and you're into the next day and you've not slept, ugh, God... I mean, I just don't do well at all in that kind of situation because, yeah, I just I just end up... So, um, yeah, terribly, terribly jet-lagged. And then you're just sort of travelling in this crazy traffic and stuff, you know, it's absolute mayhem. People, the people that drive over there, they they really they concentrate 100% on driving. There's no chat or anything. It's just... Um, I was very lucky when I was over there. I got, I got to meet the um, one of the people that runs uh, the Beijing Nine Beats School. I don't know if he still runs it. He was a guy called Wilson. He was a very nice, very funny guy. He used to work in. Um, used to work for Motorola, and uh, he was an interesting guy. He wasn't really a drummer. He did play a bit of drums and stuff, but he was a, a business person. You know, he was an opportunist. He was. He'd set up the Nine Beats School in in Beijing anyone doesn't know anything about nine beats nine beats is a is a chinese brand of music schools and particularly drums and they've got well they had at that time 125 schools across china i think it's way more now i don't know um i've been asked a couple of times to go back and do some things it's not it's never worked out sadly um and something was going to happen in March with a colleague of mine, Dave Hamlet, who's a great drummer, was going to go over and uh, do some do some stuff for Nine Beats uh, over in, um, I think he was going to Tangier. I think, not sure. But they've got some big, big schools over there, and they do these massive uh, summer kind of camp things, um, which I was invited to go and do in 2015, think 15 was it and i couldn't go because i had a tom mcrae some tom mcrae gigs that was the year that we toured tom's album we had some gigs in the summer and it was just too complicated um but i'm kind of glad anyway because it's that thing of the jet lag thing you know but uh yeah just that thing of traveling when you're traveling over there and i was just thinking We'd been driving for ages and completely bewildered, you know. Just had uh, just flown, you know, halfway across the world five, six thousand miles, whatever it is. And uh, this just the sheer size of the place was I wasn't prepared for it, you know, like uh, like being from you know England and, and living in you know, having you know, ma- mainly lived in and around Manchester and lived in London for a while. London's a small city as well, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, they're not easy. London's hard to get around because it's so busy, but it's not big. It's nothing. It's nothing like Shanghai and these places, uh, Tangier and Beijing. They're enormous places. Enormous. 20-odd million people living in these places, you know. Um, so, anyway, I'm, I was telling you the story about this crazy piece of music. So we went up to Beijing and we stayed in this little hotel. It's quite uh, quite strange, quite traditional I liked it actually uh, it was very yeah, it was kind of yeah, it was very it was very it was in like a on a in like a very just off a very busy street and a little alleyway, and it was nice it was very yeah it was a strange time, but it was uh, it wasn't like staying in some sort of corporate thing, it felt a little bit more traditional um it was nice staying in Beijing in a hotel like that, you know um in the other. When we played in when we stayed in Shanghai we stayed in sort of more hotely kind of things, which were fine but um this place was quite interesting but over the road <clears throat> from the uh from the hotel was this trouser um like a trouser shop like a, a like a men'swear wear, mainly selling trousers, lots of trousers, but he had shoes and socks and other things, but there was like large remember there loads and loads of trousers and it was one of those kind of shops that just seemed to be open always open and it had this tannoy uh that was basically on in a loop you know and it was so loud and incessant and crazy but it was amazing it was very rhythmic and i remember that i remember getting my phone out at the time um i think i was on like the samsung s2 then or something and recording this Tanoi thing and keeping this sample and I've had it ever since, you know. And uh I posted something last week on on Instagram and I was basically doing this, like trying to kind of play along with this sample because it sounded so rhythmic and I thought I can play that on the drums. And then Peter sort of chirped in because I, I copied him into the post. Um and Pete was like, I, I recorded that and I've still got the sample and he sent it to me. So then they ended up with his sample and I was speaking to Jamie the day after, and he was like, oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And I was like, oh, you remember it as well. So anyway, we ended up writing this piece, which is like a horrendous piece of music that just involves this Chinese trouser shop sample of this kind of guy screaming over a tannoy. It wasn't, the guy wasn't physically screaming over the tannoy, it was pre-recorded, it was just in a loop, you know, but it was on... Just round and round and round, and I've been reliably informed it's translated as, you know, trousers for sale, uh, special offers, everything's seven around seven quid. Apparently, that's the the, the, the exchange rate at the moment. Somebody I uh, know on the uh, online and uh, who's Chinese has translated it for me. Uh, but it's basically sale, sale, sale. Everything's for sale, seven pounds. Trousers, whatever, shoes, socks. Sounds great. Sounds like a bit of a bargain. So anyway, yeah, they've been doing doing bits of bobs of that this week. Doing some other collaborative things. Did a little thing for Matt and Freds, uh, which they, I didn't quite understand. But I know, I know what they're trying to do is they're trying to get basically keep a presence online because they're obviously shut at the moment. And anybody who knows Matt and Freds um, in Manchester has been, you know, I've had a long relationship with uh, Matt and Freds and. Claire and her dad who own it. They're nice people, you know, and they've been good to me over the years. And uh I've been playing there a long, 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 long time. Um and it's through all the different guises of owners and things. I have they've that club, you know, has gone through lots of different owners and it's gone through lots of different scenarios. Um but it's always been very loyal to me. That's great. And a few the friends, you know, like Stuart and people and you know, a lot of the Manchester people, it's been uh, yeah been a loyal a loyal club um lots of crazy stories connected to it um it's like a i i I can't wait for somebody to write the Martin Fred memoirs you know I have no idea who would write it. There's a couple of people I could think who would probably know quite a lot about it, but it you know it's um it's just one of those places uh, and it's a very hip place in Manchester you know it's a club that's got a real following and um I've I've been. I have this joke that I'm more famous for food than music, or for drumming, and I'm I'm not I'm a terrible cook, and but I have a pizza that's on the on the menu which is named after me, which um, and there's a, there's a, the story behind that is very simple. When I used to play there a lot, a long long time ago, I used to play there four five nights a week at one time. Um, one of the previous owners used to play a lot in the club uh, especially when they were going through some sort of financial times where things were a little bit tougher and they were trying to keep the live music thing going and not make it a pay to get in venue every night and stuff the real t- the thing about Mountain friends is great and they kept always kept this as they've had this you know live music He's uh, basically seven days a week now. The, the Sunday night's a bit more complicated. The Sunday night is a promoter night. I think it's um, it's got a slightly different vibe, but there is live music in there. But I think uh, there's a promoter on the door and it's a different thing and people pay to go in t- for that particular thing and they have like burlesque nights and different things and um, and different sorts of music. Um, whereas the Monday to f- Saturday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are free and and friday and saturday have always been uh, paid to get in 5 pounds queue on the door and they get in and they're always it's always absolutely rammed you know and my friends have always done that and uh i've i used to play quite a lot on fridays and saturdays years and years and years ago but the the sort of the, the vibe of the music for fridays and saturdays has moved away from um, a lot of the projects and things that i've been involved in the last few years and uh and yeah, and it's a really and it's and it's a great you know it's one of those things where they view the week. It's a it's a good business model. They don't view each night and go, oh, you know, it has, it has to be profitable every night. They they view it as a. It seems to me, and I don't know, why well, Claire and her dad do it actually, but maybe it seems like they they view the they they view the the profits for the week, so that the weekend is very very busy. I mean, it's, it's running at capacity every weekend. You know, Thursdays, and, uh, Fridays, and Saturdays, Sorry. Uh but I the night I generally play still um I, you know on a on a regular I'd call it a regular regular occasional basis now, um is the Wednesday. Uh and it's always a really nice audience and, and pretty busy, you know. And uh and I I'm looking I play with, with Stuart McCallum there probably more often than anybody else on a wednesday but also jamie sharif and me and pete used to have a residency we'd have we'd do four gigs a year which i know doesn't sound like a residency but it is because it would be consistently spaced you know and it would just be part of one of those wednesday night things and it would always be under jamie jamie sharif trio you know Stuart had a monthly thing i think it's a bi-monthly thing now um this year. I'm not hundred percent sure. At the moment obviously they're closed, but they asked me to do this thing this week, this this virtual jam thing. So I was involved in that, which is basically a just feels like a way of keeping them online, you know, keeping a bit of online presence. And uh, <clears throat> I recorded a little elvin y thing in five and then you have to kind of nominate a couple of people and they kind of contributed their bit and we reposted it ourselves as a separate thing later in the week. Um I'm not sure how much engagement there was with it particularly, but, you know, it's, it's just this thing, I think, at the moment, people trying to keep stuff going, which is great. So I'm, you know, I'm up for being involved in anything and trying to help people out. I also did... I've been working with some guys who uh, write music for a film, and I've been working with them for a few months, uh, on, on very occasionally, occasionally. Um, I ended up doing quite a lot of demos for them actually here at home, which was really useful for them. I think to help them to build some tracks, and uh, and then we're able to sort out uh, a recording situation as well. Um, and they've they've just finished our school. And i said, been yeah, it's been like an interesting time. It felt a little bit like sort of apart from not seeing people physically, obviously, and you know. And uh, and not gigging. It's this is the last week or two has felt kind of quite busy, really. Um, and then I was trying to get round to getting back on track with this, and I managed to. It's Sunday night, and I managed to get my um, get myself organised enough to start recording this. And it's a bit frustrating actually because I was, I was on the phone just before this to a very good friend of mine, Sebastian De Crum, a great drummer, who some of you may know. Um, and sebs hopefully gonna do one of these with me um hopefully got another um interview style thing coming up as well in the next week or two um but yeah we i'm kind of i'm not gonna say who that's with, but it's a drummer and um amazing young drummer who um very different kind of player, very interesting player. Um got a real individual thing going on. Very, very and I'm really fascinated to talk to him about how he's developed his um his approach to sort of drums and and music and um it's just how I was I was sort of talking about a thing like last week a little bit of just how people create their own character on an instrument, you know. Um Because obviously, you know, we're all unique anyway, so it kind of happens by just by being alive. But when I was sort of talking about that thing last week of those different guitarists that I was really into and how amazingly different they are, but yet they're all like, for instance, they're all Berkeley people, I think. Bethany Scoey, Frizzell, I think, were they all? um, I think they all came through Berkeley. Um, Stern, I think he was a Berkeley. Anyway. Just, you know, music college doesn't turn people into clones, does it? It just enables people to become more of who they are. And so, anyway, I was, I'm was i hopefully doing this other interview with this uh, chap. I'm not going to say who it is, but we're nearly... I think we've nearly kind of sorted that out. I need to reply to him, actually, because he's, he's kind of sent me some availability, which is good. Um, and I'm going to try and do a few more of those sort of things... Uh, in the next few next few weeks or so, because people seem to be well set up for it. They've got recording gear and we can do the Skype, FaceTime thing and it works really well. So, And it's just nice, uh, I think it's just nice to break things up from my monotonous kind of ramblings. But I'm going to do part two tonight of these drummers. Um, and so this was kind of framed in my head as the kind of the crossover players, you know, um players that that inspired me to get into other styles of music and it's more about that than them being players that are you know play crossover players like they're playing lots of different styles of music they're all all these people on here in some way have maybe with the exception of one they have a very strong um uh, connection in some way to sort of being schooled within some kind of jazz or traditional style or schooling of drumming, you know. And it's very interesting, all that, even the different places that they come through. So um, at the end of last episode, I was talking about Peter Erskine and I talked about Dennis Chambers. And I see those two... As kind of drummers in that whole list of the of the other drummers I was talking about, as as kind of getting closer to this list of drummers, um, and so the first drummer I'm going to talk about this week um, is I'm going to talk about with one is Will Kennedy, um, but I also going to talk about Mark. It's kind of called Mark Walker as well. There's a funny story that connects Will uh, Will Kennedy and Mark Walker. There's an album which I was very into. Uh, but Will Kennedy, um, he's a drummer maybe some of you don't know. Um, I'm assuming quite a lot of you will know. And uh, Will Kennedy is one of these players that um, who came up, I think, through the church, you know. Um, but I knew him... Because I was very into the Yellow Jackets um, when I was younger. And I was into the early band that had Ricky Lawson and uh, Robin Ford, that first band. I think that was the first band. And and Robin Ford used to sing with them, you know. And and it had a. It's like there's a very. It's a great clip on YouTube. Um, It keeps kind of been edited and disappearing and different people posting it but basically the it's like a live gig thing it's sort of black and white it's not it's not amazing quality but the band it's that band with Ferranti, Haslip, uh, Robin Ford and Ricky Lawson but it's also got Michael Landau on it on rhythm guitar like Michael Landau one of the most amazing session guitarists in the world you know just this phenomenal uh Player and an amazing, amazing writer as well, and, and a great jazz player. But I, you know, I, I knew Michael Lando. My main connection with Lando is was, was James Taylor, which I don't want to talk about that too much now because I'm going to talk about James Taylor when I talk about um, Carlos Vega. But I don't want to get to Carlos Vega yet. Um, Will Kennedy? So there was a there was a band uh, the. the lots of different guises of the work of the, the Yellow Jackets and lots of sort of, lots of lots different versions of the band that crossed over with Personnel, but there was, like... The two bands, for me, that I really, really liked was the Mark Russo, that later Mark Russo, the quartet with Will Kennedy, Haslip and Ferranti and, and Mark Russo. Mark Russo is an amazing alto player, you know. I know he plays tenor as well. He plays in the Doobie Brothers now and things, I think, doesn't he, and stuff. Um, but there's some great great albums um with with Russo with that version of the of uh, of the Yellow Jackets. And then after that Russo left and Bob Minzer joined. And i don't, i I've been really into Bob Minzer um from other things, you know, like um uh, there's that very famous Jacko video with Erskine, isn't there, and um and Randy Brecker with Bob Minzer, that band. Uh, I think Othello Molyneux. Is He on um I think he's on Steel Pan and Don Elias I think um but anyway I've been listening to um Mincer because he was playing with Erskine and people and uh I always love Bob Mincer's playing because I, fa- I find I think his solos are very melodic um very he's a, he's a very singing player He always sounds very strong singing lines, you know. It's, um, <clears throat> I mean, he's amazing, you know, technical and amazing player and stuff. But there is just this kind of quality of real lyricism I, I find, and uh, it's one of the reasons why I like Bob Berg. I was talking about last week, you know. Uh, one of the albums I forgot to mention last week it was uh, called Short Stories, which is a Bob Berg album from I think eighty eight ish, maybe early eighty seven. Uh, maybe eighty eight. It was it was around the time when they when Stern made his album called Time in Place, which is the album I was talking about with, with Peter Erskine. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> Bob Mintzer, um, brilliant with the Yellow Jackets, and it's, there's, a, there's a long, there's quite a lot of albums. Um, with um, with that quartet on it. So Bob Mintzer, Will Kennedy, Russell Franti and Jimmy Hazlitt. And um, I'd really recommend a track called Greenhouse. Now, it's another Vince Mendoza connection and it's all very boring because it's Mendoza. It's just, it's just amazing. Uh, but it's on an album called, I think it's called Greenhouse, the album. Um, and it's the first track. And it's brilliant writing. The string writing's amazing. It's got that Mendoza vibe about it. And um, and it, it was basically a really good old friend of mine called Pete Hughes. Um, hello, Pete. Lots of love if you're listening. I know you have been. Um, Pete really... Like, Pete's one of those people in life where, um, where they get you into lots of other styles of music. Because it's hard, isn't it? You know, you... you it's like hard to find what to get into. There's so much stuff available to you and then if you find like you know somebody that you get on with as, as a as a human being as a person you've got you know things in common both as 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 people and and as musical taste it's great because then you end up being able to share things with each other which which you you'll obviously like you know and uh I think Pete's introduced me to more music. Than, than everybody else in my life put together. I think, um, you know, um, some of the drummers on this list, they're connected to people that I got into because of Pete, you know. And uh, The Yellow Jackets was... Well, he put me on to um, some of the other albums, but it was before, just before we met um, this guy... Uh, called Raque again. I was talking about last week. Who gave me this Vince Mendoza stuff? He sent me in the in the post. In I think it was like nineteen ninety three or something. I can't remember. He sent me a cassette, and on it was a was a was another load of compilation stuff because he was another person. He was kind. of, We stayed in touch when I moved away from London for a while and. Um. He sent me this tape of some stuff, and 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 he sent me some of that album. And it was I remember this this track, Greenhouse. I remember just putting this thing on and being like, "What is this?" You know. And then not long after that, I um, kind of made this commitment to staying in the north of England. And you know, you're trying to find something to do, aren't you? You know, you like I need, I need a new scene of people to to kind of play with or work with or you know find kindred spirits, and one of the best things that I did, and I think I talked about this in the Gigging Life um, episode some episodes ago, um, was, like, at the time, there used to be, in the Manchester Union News, there used to be, like, this classified column which basically had people that were looking for, you know, different lines of work, and they used to have music like a sort of musical I don't know what it was called music opportunities or something but basically there was an advert in this um in the evening news and it was basically for a band from sort of Wigan area were looking for a drummer a bass player and keyboards um for a a jazzy influence, solely original thing that were looking to do some, you know, to basically make an album and stuff and they were looking for musicians. And so, if you go back to my episode, two episodes ago, the first thing I played is this thing called Cornerstone. I'd just written that piece and it was like 91, 92, I think I finished, 92-ish, I think I finished recording that, end of 92, early 93, not, it's all a bit blurry to be honest with you. Um, it must have been 93, actually. Yeah. Anyway, so I rang this number up in this advert because I was looking for something to do and it sounded interesting. And my mum at the time was like, you know, come on, you need to find some new friends and you need to find some new stuff, whatever. Um, so I, I sort of rang this. It was just like a, a landline, you know, it's like you used to in the old days before mobiles, you got on the phone. And, and this guy on to call Wayne Edwards uh, who I still know um, and um uh, great great guitarist and writer and producer Wayne and uh and uh, we got a lot of mutual friends um but this guy Wayne yeah and we were chatting on the phone and uh, I was just talking to him about what I was into and he was like he sounded like he was like he knew what I was talking about and it sounded like he was genuinely interested so the next day these the He came over and he drove over with this guy called Dave Bailey, who I still know now. I'm trying to get Dave to sing uh, on something I've written, actually. Um, Dave's a great singer. Um, And uh, they came to my house and I played them this piece of music, you know, (laughs) because that was all I had. I was like, well, this is what I've been doing, you know. I don't know anybody. I've just moved back from... We were back from London a year or so ago and I've been not sure exactly what I've been doing and I've not really been playing very much, you know, a bit all over the place, but I've just written this piece of music and what do you think? And they were like, this guy's off his edge, you know, he's a bit mad, but we quite like it because they were into jazz, into Pat Metheny, they were, they knew about, they really knew about music that I knew about. So he's definitely, you know, there was a real connection there. It was, a, it was a connection of, you know, that thing was sort of beyond oh yeah you're you're a musician I'm a musician. It was about sort of style of music and taste of music and approach and philosophy of music and stuff you know um I can still even today can talk to those two guys about the same the same stuff because we're all into the same music so anyway I went to um they invited me to come and do a rehearsal with them you know and so I went to this uh place uh, over in Wigan. Uh, and I didn't drive at the time, and I managed to get over there, and somebody gave me a lift. So I can't remember exactly how it all worked out. It was all a bit of a nightmare, but I ended up getting over there. And in this band was um, everybody, maybe bar one. Uh, one of the people I don't don't know, I've not seen for quite a long time, but I know he's still around. Um, but basically, this band was Pete was in this band. This is when I met Pete. A guy called Dave Baldwin, who's a great uh, a piano player he used to play a lot with. Um I was talking telling that story I think uh, a few weeks ago about the um the burning car in Salford in Oldsall. Um in the Stuart McCallum episode, if you ever heard that story. Um Aldsall's not all like that by the way, but it was just there used to be a lot of things going on outside this flat. It was just a crazy place. Um but Dave, yeah, Dave Baldwin was in that band. I mean, Dave, as you know from that story from the episode with Stuart, he used to play with Huey. We played together for years. Me and Pete still talk every day now. You know, Neil Fairclough was a brilliant bass player from Bolton. Um, so such a funny guy. He plays in Queen now, and plays with Brian May and stuff. And but Neil's like an amazing musician, brilliant singer. Had a great band called Pocket Central for years. A really f- sort of well-known Manchester um, band kind of it's sort of you know influenced by steely dan sort of whatever kind of thing all the people involved in that band are really kind of inspired by that kind of music great drummer called brian hargreaves um who's a manchester player great really you know just another one of those a great another great crossover player actually you know very great latin drummer uh great pocket but also jazz player and just um yeah and he's done loads of you know lots of different commercial work um and i think he runs i think brian is like the um the bim which we have um in manchester i think brian's the sort of the the drum the head of the drum thing or the director of the drum department um and they've got some good faculty luke flowers is there and stuff and yeah some good players uh anyway i digress but this that band had and there was wayne and dave dave was singing and wayne was playing guitar and they were the writers and we did a tv show and saw sort of bits and bobs and it didn't really come to much but we all stayed in touch you know and uh and then me and pete had a band together for years and years which we played a lot of my music and his music and a guy called mike isaac a brilliant bass player who lives down um lives back down sort of Ivy Bridge way, down in plymouth way. I think, I'm not sure if he's exactly there anymore, but he's down... He, that was where he was from. He lived in Manchester for a long time, and he moved back down there nearer his family. Um, and uh, a wonderful sax player called uh, Lara James, who now lives back in, in Wales. But Lara lived up here for years, and... Um, I think went to the RNCM and stuff and she was a really we were all very much into similar music like you know Oregon and Paul McCandless and stuff and that was this kind of Will Kennedy story um because we were really we listened to a lot of um like music from this Windham Hill label and the ECM label and there was a real there was a bit of a connection between Wyndham Hill and, and ECM was was like Lyle Mays and, and Paul McCandless, you know, these these and Ralph Towner. And they were all ECM. They were all people that recorded on ECM, but they were also recording a lot on Wyndham Hill, particularly Paul McCandless and Ralph Towner, because they had this band called Oregon, you know. Oregon's a pretty famous um one of those sort of um world jazz i don't know what you what you call it it's beautiful music you know it's got folky americanary thing um and sort of oregon's had these the drummer called mark walker involved with that band and also trillette gertrude and um, anyway and ralph towner um but there was a great album that we used to listen to called premonition which is a paul mccandless album it's been sort of long deleted. Uh, and it was on. Win- I'm pretty sure it was on Wyndham Hill. Uh, Pete will probably correct me if I'm wrong. Actually, um, but on the album, um, there's Lyle Mays. This guy called Fred Simon, who um, he's from Chicago. He's a great piano player. Fred Simon, very kind of lively kind of sort of vibe but he's very much his own you know he's very much his own thing Fred Simon I used to kind of used to chat to Fred quite a lot because we were in this Pat Metheny news group back in the day when you used to have news groups you know and I was a member of the Pat Metheny news group and I used to got to meet lots of really interesting people on there and one of them was Fred Simon and I was listening to Fred Simon's music and I really liked his music and he was a dead nice guy really down to earth and we you know, we had very, very similar tastes with Jarrett and stuff. And so we used to sort of have exchange emails and nearly got Fred to play on one of my tunes, but it just didn't quite work out, um, mostly because I was completely disorganised, as usual. Um, but it's something I'll hopefully get, you know, get make happen in the future. Um, especially now we're doing more and more, you know, at distance. At the time, it was really... I was going to get him to record... You know, in his house he's got a nice piano, and he was going to you know set a couple of mics up, and he was going to play on i would sent him this tune that was kind of written with him in mind um and Pete as well because they're very similar kind of players really uh got similar approach to music and just it's the way they write and stuff and uh and Fred was into the piece you know the, the he he liked the piece of music and i i was it was me playing piano on the actual uh, thing that I sent him because it was just a demo you know but I put some real drums on it and there was some nice really nice soprano sax playing by a guy called Russ Vandenberg um, who's a British sax player who lives in I think he lives in Spain now but but yeah Russ put some really nice um, soprano sax on it some great playing on there and uh, Richard Hammond was playing bass on it um, but he didn't quite work out anyway Blah blah blah. On that al- on this album premonition was this guy Fred Simon and Lyle Mays. Um and sort of Lyle was playing piano and Fred was playing a lot all the synth stuff and doing some of the programming and things with the with the synths. Um so it's quite a soundscapey album. you got Port and then he was Paul McCandless on sax. Um and I just can't remember who else was on the album. Oh, that's really bad. Um, but basically the, 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 the story behind the drum side of the album, I think it was Steve Rodby on bass, I think, because um, Steve Rodby played a lot with Fred Simon and Paul McCandless. They they did some projects together. Um, and and Rodby's such a great producer as well, and he's just a great sort of brain to have around, musical brain, you know, it's one of those kind of characters... Sort of supreme supreme musical brain brilliant bass player um you know those pat matheny albums there's you know all those albums have they've got you know they've got the, the great matheny and the you know the amazing lyle thing they're their co-writing and also their individual writing but there's there's a spattering of of steve Robbie all the way through those albums from when he joined the band you know it's just that kind of a though you can hear those ears it's just that uh, yeah amazing but anyway mark walker was supposed to play drums on that album um and mark walker if you don't know mark walker he's another chicago i think he's from chicago drummer and he's great player really really underrated in my opinion actually one of my favorite drummers um and uh, like, I remember, I played at North Sea Jazz in 1997, and I remember, because uh, it was at the, in The Hague then, in, in Holland, The Hague, and it was on a big site, you know, the North Sea things, just, you know, you go in, it's on one site, and you've just got all these this music going on everywhere, all these different bandstands, and they made it work, it was amazing, you you could sit and watch a gig then there'd be another gig going on near you where you wouldn't hear the other gig and then you could just walk 50 yards and be watching another gig. And I remember the year I played there, I'd done this gig um, with this singer called, a uh, singer poet called Dana Bryant, who was from New York. And um, there was a me and Jeremy Sassoon, an old friend of mine, Sylvan Richardson, were, were like her trio. Jem had put this trio together, Jeremy, and he was in it. And... Um, there was a connection between her ex record label and jeremy and stuff so it was it was nice she and she liked us and we did a couple of tours and uh, she was great really great uh, human being really liked her very very inspiring person uh, very very talented and uh, full on you know really um, really really amazing very really lucky to have to have done uh, worked with her not for, not for very long we did just did a couple of very small tours. Uh, but we got we luckily we played at North Sea Jazz. Um, and on the, st- on the the gig after us was Bella Fleck, you know, in the Fleck Tones. And I got to meet Victor Wooten and stuff and, and Bella Fleck. And I was listening to Bella Fleck because Pete had got me into Bella Fleck and Future Man, you know, with the drum guitar and all that stuff. Um, but after we played our gig, me and Jem were just wandering around North Sea, you know, and we saw within like 5 minutes we saw like Steve Coleman and then Michelle Camilo and when Michelle Camilo Mark Walker was playing with Michelle Camilo and uh, and it was great to hear um, Michelle Camilo with Mark Walker because a lot of the drummers like Clifford Almond or Dave Weckl they have this kind of reputation of being like super slick you know it's like super slick music isn't it the Michelle Camilo thing he's a ridiculous technician on the piano it's unbelievable it's like you know, it's like superstar piano playing. It's amazing stuff. Um, and like Clifford Almond was is the drum I've heard kind of most really, weak. and he's so good with Michelle Camilo. He's such a you know, he's really really clean, superb player. It's just amazing playing. But um, this trio is Anthony Jackson uh, and Mark Walker and Michelle Camilo, and it was really. Uh, Beautiful because Mark kind of brought this different vibe to it, you know, um, and it wasn't looser because it was super slick and it was super on it. It was just something for me, a bit more organic about it, you know. And I know that's like a funny word. Some people use that word when they're sort of, when they're sort of describing something that's that's not great, you know. it's got an organic vibe, is a way of saying, oh, it sounds like it's a bit loose and a bit bullshitty, you know. And uh, it's like, that's certainly not what I'm describing here. You know, you're not going to be on a stage with Michelle Camille and Artie Jackson if you've not got your shit together. Um, Mark Walker's an amazing drummer. You should check him out if you get the chance to. I really recommend it. Um, Because I don't think many of you listening to this will have heard of him, you know. Um, But anyway, Mark Walker broke his arm the story goes, and couldn't do this album. So Will Kennedy ended up on this record. And, um, it's a really interesting album. If you can find it, I recommend them and listen to it. It might not be to your musical taste. Um, you know, I quite like some of this soft diffusion, (laughs) I'd call it. I don't know what you'd call it really. Um, there is a there is a name, not for this particular style of music, but for some of the others. But I'm not going to share it with you because it will ruin it for you forever, and it's ruined it for me, thanks to Stuart McCallum. But it's um, you know, if we ever meet and you ask me, I'll tell you the answer to it. I'm not going to say it on here. It's very very funny and it's absolutely spot on correct the description of what it is. Uh, it's devastating. <laughs> but anyway, if you get a chance to check this album out, the first track. Is got this offbeat thing, and it's like um, the tempo's like that. Uh, it's about that kind of tempo, and he plays this. He plays this offbeat thing, Will Kennedy, all the way through it. Like even when he's doing the fills and he's doing everything, this thing is. He, he, he's absolutely nailed, and it's it's all open close higher it's, it's, it's all the way through. And then when it gets, it finally gets out into when the when the melody opens out, and it kind of it goes onto the ride, you know. Um, and it's just because you know, as a lot of you um, who know Will Kennedy will know that he plays open. He's an open. He's a left hand. He's a left hooker who plays a right handed sort of setup. But he doesn't really, it's a half and half thing. So he plays right-footed. Um, so he plays the hi-hat with his left foot, the based with his right foot. He sets the toms up like I would as a right-hander. Um, but the ride and the crashes are basically situated on the left side of the kit. So his ride is above his hi-hat, and he plays the hi-hat with the left hand. And this pattern, it's it's a perfect pattern for somebody that's essentially right-footed and left-handed. I can now, I I, I tried practicing this for years and I could never get it down. And it's because I didn't approach the practice and the coordination in the right way. And I've now learned to to practice the coordination in the right way. And I can, and I can now play this pattern and I can play it quite easily, but it was to find the right coordinational exercises um, was, was the challenge. And and it is a coordinational thing and it's not just practising this pattern, it's practising it's some of the things that you practise that teach you to be able to play in this way. And I was always in awe of this track, so I'd really recommend that. Um, so, Will Kennedy, yeah, and the Yellow Jacket stuff, brilliant. And then he left the Yellow Jackets for a while, didn't he? Because I think he went back to the church to play. Um, and now he's back in the Yellow Jackets again, uh, which is great. And uh, he's got... The thing I'll say about Will Kennedy... Just to sum him up, this is very true of, you know, of lots of great musicians, but the thing particularly about Will Kennedy that always I always think is that you always know where you are in the tune, wherever you turn a tune on by the way he's playing the drums. You know whether you're into the second out chorus or you're in the third, whatever. He's just got this way of, of really being very clear in the way he plays the drum part in the tune of saying where the music is, where the music got to, you know, hopefully that makes sense. It makes sense to me. sounds a bit weird when you say it, but it uh, makes sense to me. So, yeah, Will Kennedy, Mega, and Mark Walker. So that's the Will Kennedy, Mark Walker story. I talked a little bit last week about Brian Blade, one of these crossover drummers. Uh... And there's not much to say, really. It's just I would. The Fellowship's a great band with Brian Coward and uh, and and Co. and um, Byron Wallam. I think is it on uh, sax. Um, Anyway, the Fellowship. I think Kurt Rosenwinkel's on some of the early albums. Um, It's really, really kind of wholesome. Um, music that really connects with um, with audience, you know. That's not just a jazz audience. It's very, it's very similar thing to the Matheny thing, which is completely different sorts of music. But it's got a very similar connection, I think. And it's, and it's the Brian Coward writing, and it's another great piano player. You know, he's a great piano player. He's a great writer, and uh, I so I'd, I'd really recommend that stuff and then i'd I'd recommend his solo album called mama rosa where he sings and he plays a lot of the instruments on that album um uh but it's a really uh he's got a beautiful voice it's not like an amazing voice it's not like he's drumming but he's got a really nice voice you know and it's very very moving album uh very personal album and uh uh a great drum sound on that album. It's just all really groovy, you know, songy album. And you just really get to hear him as a, as a, as a, in uh, the way he crafts through a song, you know. Because the thing, you know, you listen to Blade when he plays jazz and it's like the poor motion thing. You You just, you don't know what's going to happen. It's like, here we go, you know, and Vinnie, as like I was saying last week, the Vinnie Colaiuta thing for me has the same, uh, the same emotion attached to it. It's very different sort of playing, but it's the same kind of thing. You don't know what's going to happen, and the Paul Motion thing, you just can't talk about what his playing was constructed by because it's just drumming, you know, in its purest form on the mod- on the modern instrument, you know. Um But yeah, Blade, I'd, Mama Rosa. I'd recommend the album because it's very groo, it's a very groovy album. And he plays lots of double bass on it, and piano and guitar and stuff as well. And you re- and you just really get to hear the depths of the of the musicianship of the, of the man himself, you know, on that album. I think so. That's what's really, you know, you listen to him with the Wayne Shorter Quartet, and you listen to that album, and you really, yeah, it all makes sense because of this. It's all from the music, you know. It's that same thing with Will Kennedy, you know. You know where you are in the music because of the way that he plays. Um, so I'm not going to labour the Brian Blade thing, but I'm going to move on to, um, just to mention some a couple of other drummers that I've listened to quite a lot of um, very, very briefly. Um, one you will definitely have heard of, Jim Keltner, who's absolute... It's just like, you know, Jim Keltner is drums, songs. That is just, there's nothing else to say. Um, but if you haven't checked him out, I've as a, as a drummer to another drummer listening, or any other musician that's listening, I would seek him out. Um, and George Pirelli, this guy called George Pirelli, who's um, a mega groove player, you know really, really um like pocket player, you know, and sort of George Pirelli leads me on to um this next section of drummers, really, um because I discovered like George Pirelli and Jim Keltner actually through Picaro, John Robinson and Gad Jeff Picaro because I know that I know the Picaro thing and the Gad thing and the John Robinson thing that it's all a big cliche. I know that, I get that, and everyone's, like, rolling their eyes. Oh, Steve Gard, yeah, whatever. Jeff Piccaro, yeah, 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 most recorded drummer, blah, blah, blah. John Robinson, most recorded drummer, whatever. But there's a reason why they are that, aren't they? <laughs> you know, because um they had an amazing way of working with artists Um and it's that Jim Kelter thing. It's like the Russ Kunkel thing as well. I'm, I, everyone who knows me knows I'm a big James Taylor fan. And so we'll get to Carlos Vega in a minute because, you know, um uh, never played with James Taylor as far as I know, and neither is John Robinson. But Steve Gadd, I've seen James Taylor with Steve Gadd three or four times, I think. Uh, I've also seen him with Ricky Lawson. Uh, sorry, not, uh, not Ricky Lawson. Sorry, um, with... Um, at Harvey Mason. Sorry, it wasn't Ricky Lawson at all. It was Harvey Mason. Um, wasn't I? Didn't enjoy that gig so much. Uh, my good friend Elliot Henshaw was sat in a different part of the uh, of the. It was actually a summer pops thing in a big tent in Liverpool, and I was sat side on to the stage, and I don't think I had a great mix. Um, but I found his playing a bit busy in that music. Sorry, it sounds a bit controversial, but it sounds it just didn't quite sit for me. Elliot was was sat uh, at looking at the stage front on, so it had a different sound, and I think maybe the sound was more connected for him because he, he really enjoyed the gig. Uh, I've seen James Taylor uh, in lots of different configurations, sort of one-man band thing with Larry Goldings, which is probably it's close to my favourite gig, but I was very lucky to go and see him couple of years ago with a good friend of mine lee mullen um lee mullen knows everybody in in music especially in kind of those circles um you know Louis conti and uh, john robinson and people uh lee just seems to know people he's one of these amazing people that's <laughs> he's just he's a percussion, great percussionist and drummer and a very good friend of mine and uh he he knew this guy Michito Sanchez who was playing with James Taylor because he was depping for Lewis who wasn't uh, on that tour, and I got to go and see that gig, and uh, and it was with Gad again, but the support band support band it was like a double header tour really, um, and so James Taylor was was on with his band but he also guested with um, Bonnie Raitt and also Alan McCullough did the guesting thing with her as well um, they did uh, Nick of Time which was mega and and then she also came out and did something with James Taylor and so I think I don't know if that's my favourite gig there was really good sound and we had really good seats because Lee kind of got us in and stuff and we had uh, we were sat just to really nice seats. the sound was really good for an arena gig it was very very they, they had the sound very low you know very quiet so it was brilliant and everyone was really listening And um, but the thing that was great about that gig was because Bonnie Raitt was on as well you see I really love Bonnie Raitt so it was like it was basically it was and James Taylor he just sounded amazing he, his voice you know he just seems to get better with age it's funny cause the older he gets the, 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 the better his voice seems to sound um, and the band was steaming Jimmy Johnson was he was clearly MDing. Larry Goldings wasn't on that gig. He was somebody was depping for him on that gig. The guy looked actually just like him, bizarrely, and played like him. He was brilliant, but he wasn't. I can't remember his name. Uh, but he was he was depping. Uh, I'm not sure why Larry wasn't on that gig. But Jimmy was MDing, and he sounded amazing. But yeah, the Gad thing. Um, so anybody knows, yeah. Anybody knows me knows him into the, the James Taylor thing. So the Russ Kunkel... Uh, Again, like Jim Keltner and these drummers that really know how to play songs, you know, really know how to, um, like, underpin the architecture of a song but also have character and personality in their own playing. And I just find, yeah, I find those kind of players so mesmerising and so interesting. Um, And... And this is why Jeff Picaro, Steve Gard, and John Robinson have this reputation, you know, is because they've been doing that forever, you know. I mean, okay, Jeff's not been around a long time, um, but if you go back to listening to Jeff Picaro on records, the th- the thing that I love about Jeff Picaro was if you ever get a chance to watch, um, it's called what's it called now? Throwback thursday or something it's uh from the from jeff berlin's place the music musicians institute or whatever it's called mit or something um not sure what it's called anyway you'll find it on youtube it's with jeff picaro and it's like uh he talks for quite a long time he does a bit of playing at the end but the 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 really kind of um beautiful thing about the way he comes across in it, it was just this thing of the social side of music. The the thing that music is a is a social thing, you know. It's about it's a, it, it, what, even if you're a studio drummer and you're, you know, we're just working with producers and artists and you're and you're not particularly, you know, out there sort of gigging, just doing a sort of, you know, doing a circuit or whatever, there's still the drumming has gotta have this Social connection about it. It's got to. It's got to feel like it's come from somewhere, and it's trying to. It's trying to tell a story of something, you know. Because that's what it's. You know, that's where it's from. And in West Africa, and all. It's a community thing. It's a deep. It's a deep thing. It's part of the ritual of 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 society coming together and and, and celebrating spirituality or religion or whatever you want to call it. You know, whatever your whatever rocks your boat, but. Um, the centre of that is is the two things, is is rhythm and dance, you know. And uh, I think I recommended a few weeks ago this Yogi Horton, uh, the, the History of R&B Drumming or whatever it's called. It's on YouTube. Again, that's the thing he talks about is, is the way in which the grooves were inspired by the dancing, you know. They're not the other way around. And... Uh, and he talks about being, you know, a good friend of Gads and working around that scene in New York with Gad and stuff in in that in that early late seventies early eighties period, you know. Um, but the Picaro thing, there's 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 no, you know, there's no surprise when you look at those albums. You see so many albums with, like, uh, Lewis Johnson, Steve Gad, or Jeff Picaro and Lewis Johnson, or uh, Mike Picaro, Jeff Picaro. Willie Weeks, Jeff Picaro, Willie Weeks, Steve Gadd, you know. Just there's like hundreds of albums which have those configurations of bass and drums on them, you know. Jimmy Johnson, Gadd, et cetera, et cetera. That's... um, It may be a cliché, but it's a cliché for a reason, you know. And it's not to be ignored, in my opinion. And Jeff Picard has been sadly dead a long time now, you know, 92, I think he died. Um, and his name, is still talked about like he's alive, you know, and that's amazing. He's still talked about like Gad and like John Robinson. And uh, they were hugely influential players on me because they, those three players got me into... Um, they got me into Russ Kunkel and Jim Keltner. They got me into George Pirelli. They got me into you know uh, other styles of music, um, singer songwriters. They got me into James Taylor. They got me into Michael McDonald. You know, a massive Michael McDonald fan. George Pirelli played Michael McDonald as Pica- as, as, as as Picaro. You know, um, so they they were really important for getting me away from this kind of jazz fusion world which I was really really focused and a bit obsessive because basically the thing with James Taylor and Michael McDonald was they both got me into music that had lyrics and and I'd just not been listening for years and years and years I wasn't listening to any music that had lyrics you know I was listening to music that all was all just instrumental music and um and that's quite unusual you know, especially from the background that I had, the, the fact that I grew up on the Top 40 and I grew up on The Who and The Jam and, and like, Paul, I was talking about Paul Weller, Style Council, last week. And just, got, I really got, once I got into the Buddy Rich thing and the Jarrett thing, because uh, I think the, the Jarrett thing was the main thing and then I connected to, like, Lyle Mays and uh, and then, like, Stern, you know, and Matheny and, and Schofield and Frizzell and uh just... All these players, and like Bob Mintz was saying before, they're all very lyrical players, you know. So I kind of don't think I felt the need to have the, the word, you know, in the music. Um, but I was really missing something. And then the other thing is, anybody that knows me, I don't read anything and never have. I've, I just don't read at all. I've never really read a book it's never been something that i got into when i was younger and then as you get older it's harder and harder to get into reading because you know you, you know you develop the skills of reading don't you um it's like learning to read music. I, I read music very well, you know. Um, and I was very, very good at it when I was, like, 15, 16, 17, 18, when I was doing lots of classical reading. I was couldn't read anything at that time. Then I stopped reading for, for many years and started reading again when I was in my 30s. But it, it came straight back to me. And the book thing has never come to me. So I've always struggled with with words. and uh, But at some point, just in the early noughties... Um, and I don't know whether it coincided with when I was ill, because I was quite I was quite poorly when I was 30 for about a year, um, and maybe that was the time when I kind of got into musicians, or uh, well, music that had words into songs, you know. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but those players, Jeff Picard and John Robinson, all got me into... Um, to musicians that you know, music that had and uh, musicians that had um, that had lyrics. And then and then i you know, Jim Keltner and, and Russ Kunkel and um various other players and and I and I put Brian Blade in with those, you know, you listen to Nora Jones um uh, Don't Know Why, you know, it's Brian Blade on that track. Um so he's kinda of like one of those things where you know, and Blade was really making a reputation for himself and he was popping up on all sorts of different records. You know, there's a reason why, because he's got this amazing crossover ability to be able to be a real servant of the music in all different styles of music. And, you know, you think about think about that. And then you think about an album like... Um, I think he's on... I've got to get this the right way around... There's Both Sides Now and then there's Travelog. They're both Joni Mitchell albums that are with Vince Mendoza strings. I think Blade's on Travelog and Erskine's on Both Sides Now. I think that's the right way around. I hope I've got that right. If I got it wrong, it's the other way around and it doesn't matter. Anyway, because they're both amazing players within that music, you know, uh, for Joni Mitchell, you know. They've got that ability to be able to really be in the song. Uh, it's like Diana Crowell with, you know, with Erskine or Jeff Hamilton, you know. Uh, it's just heavy. So um I just want to talk about one more player um, which kind of fills this segment hugely. And it's another player that's sadly no longer with us, Um it's Carlos Vega, and I really would talk about Carlos because um, I really think that sometimes there's an album uh, or maybe a little collection of albums but one album particularly um, where if you want to go to to something and go okay this is the this is the quintessential version of of this incarnation of this vibe which i know it doesn't make any sense that sentence but basically there's an album by james taylor and it's a bit confusing because there's two versions of this album it's called jt or james taylor live i haven't got the cd here with me i've got the cd of it and it's not here but there's two versions one is a single cd and one's a double cd and the double cd is the one if you're going to if you're going to buy either the two the double cd is the one cuz the double cd has the hits and the album tracks and you want in my opinion you want with james taylor you want the album tracks you want all of it right from you know the early 70s uh sweet baby james and um and from um Mudslide, Slim and the Blue Horizon, you know, and One Man Dog and just all those early albums, you want the album tracks. I know these are the big hits and everyone loves the big hits and Carolina on my mind and You've Got a Friend and all that stuff. It's all beautiful. But get in the pocket and listen to Woman's Gotta Have It or Daddy's All Gone or, you know. I'm telling you, you if you've not checked out these albums and these tracks, you've missed... You've missed a huge, beautiful thing that's going to be so amazing for you to check out. And so that early band, Danny Kuchmar and Russ Kunkel, Leland Sklar, and Don Grolnick, uh kind of period. Uh, was one, one, that's one of the bands. Um, then there was this band where Sklar was still involved and then Carlos Vega, Don Gronick jimmy johnson uh and then michael lando or bob Mann, different guitar and james james taylor uh, but that live album um i remember talking to uh an old friend of mine called jake newman um, great bass player who used to live up here lives down in lives down in london now um and jake was He's a big James Taylor fan. He's a big Jimmy Johnson's fan, actually. He's, they, I think, they know each other a bit and stuff. And uh, but he's Jake's. You know, he's got a he's got a real great taste in music, and uh, he's a real bass player. You know, it's that sort of bass players have a real. I always think they have a approach to music that's, that's from a bass perspective, and it's like for, from a drummer, it's like really essential and heartwarming to meet those people. You know, all the bass players I know are like that. Um... And I remember talking about this album, uh, and he put it beautifully, Jake. He just said it's just one of those albums where, as a band and as a rhythm section, the playing is impeccable. You know, and like not 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 like like super pro and all that kind of. It's it's nothing. It's just it's. it's just impeccable playing uh, everything is beautifully played and served, the music is beautifully served you know um, so I'd really recommend that album if you get a chance um, but there's a great album called Hourglass which is uh, quite a big quite an important James Taylor album actually because it was uh, I think it was an album he hadn't done an album for quite a few years Um. I really like an album called Never Die Young, which is Carlos Vega's first album, I think, with James Taylor, but I think it's Leyland Sklar on bass on that album. Don Grolnick. Um, not sure if it's Michael Lando or Bob Mann, but and it's some great, great drumming on that album. Absolutely killing drumming on that album. Uh, Letter in the Mail, The Pocket on that track. I still just don't know how he he sits so far back with the backbeat and it's totally in time, you know. But anyway, it's a real treat for you, you know, if you've not checked any of that stuff out. Um, so I'm going to finish there. I don't want to go on forever because there's so many different drummers and um, I could just go on and on and on about it, but uh, I won't. So... Um, I think that's about it really so I hope yeah hope you have a good week uh, finally managed to get back on track this Sunday evening um, and uh, yeah I'll be back hopefully next week um, hopefully with an interview we'll see how we get on with that this week if we can get that sorted out um, it will be done one evening this week so it will be um, I'll be ahead of things for that and that'll be really nice um, really nice to get that done finally we've been talking about it for ages on and off, um, so yeah. Have a great week and uh, keep safe. Um, I hope uh, things start to, you know, sort of uh, things start to improve. Still, things to keep going in the right direction. And um, as we can sort of get nearer to June, which was always the time, I think we we all thought deep down. I think a lot of us didn't. We that June was going to be the was going to be the month where things perhaps started to return to uh closer to what normal was and maybe closer to what the, what we're calling the new normal um and i i think i i'd met somebody or spoke to somebody a long while back who was who was quite knowledgeable in medicine and they basically said to me june it nothing there's no way we'll be able to be doing anything really before june just simply because of the maths of it you know the the way in which these things work and uh and they you know if we if we keep things under control um as as we have done then yeah they look like they're going to be spot on with their prediction which is which is heartwarming in a way because um they were talking about blooming october at one point weren't they which was horrendous so um so yeah let's hope things return to normal don't want to dwell on it too much So, um, yeah, until next week, take care and um, I'll see you then. So bye for now.